G'day folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. This week we bring you part one of a three-part series that Camilla has put together on cybersecurity buzzwords. A really interesting discussion there, and if you're particularly new to information security, uh, it's a really great way, I guess, to get uh, across some of the concepts that you do hear going around all the time. So that will be up in a bit, but first we will do the usual roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases over the last week. So this week there were 58 unique CVEs addressed, and up first we had an update for BlueZ. So this is for our Ubuntu releases 18.04 and 20.04 long-term support. Uh, interesting this one, our CVEs have not been assigned for these vulnerabilities, but we have had uh, customers and others inquiring about uh, yeah, a bunch of fixes that went into the upstream BlueZ project. And yeah, so uh, Mark Delore on our team has uh, shipped this update now that includes those. So that is a possible out-of-bounds read in uh, the audio video remote control protocol profile, uh, a possible out-of-bounds write, as well as a possible one-byte buffer overflow in uh, the audio video distribution transport protocol profile as well. So if you're using BlueZ with untrusted uh, input devices, you're a bit safer now. After that was our live patch for the Linux kernel. This is for all of the releases that live patch is supported on. So that is uh, 14.04 and 16.04 extended security maintenance, as well as 18.04, 20.04 and 22.04 long-term support releases. Uh, a couple of different vulnerability fixes were rolled into this one by the live patch team. Both of these in the NetFilter subsystem, uh, an out-of-bounds write and uh, use after free. Uh, the out-of-bounds write can actually be mitigated by disabling unprivileged user namespaces. So if that is something that uh, your systems don't need, uh, as always, to harden your system, we recommend disabling unnecessary functionality. And that is one that does provide a reasonable uh, attack surface. Obviously, a lot of functionality as well. So it's useful on various systems. But if your systems don't need it, yeah, you can always disable that and be a little bit safer. In the show notes, I've included a table that has all the different kernel versions and live patch versions uh, in that cross matrix. So you can see yeah, which one might be needed. You can always just run canonical live patch status and see the output from that. Speaking of kernel updates, we also had updates for uh, the MMIO stale data issue that I mentioned back in last week's episode. So uh, we had an update for all the general availability and some of the hardware enablement kernels uh, to fix those. Uh, again, that is 14.04 and 16.04 extended security maintenance, 18.04, 20.04, 22.04 long-term support respectively, and uh, 21.10, the Ambush injury, which yeah, does go out of support soon. So if you are running that, I suggest you upgrade to 22.04 long-term support. But yeah, let's get back to Intel MMIO stale data. As I said, I did mention this in passing in last week's episode. So yeah, kernels are now available as well as microcode updates to mitigate these issues. Uh, so once you have installed the kernel, you will see a new file under sysfs, uh, sysdevices, system CPU vulnerabilities, and then MMIO stale data. Uh, within this, uh, the kernel then enumerates uh, essentially how, you know, whether your processor is affected and what kind of mitigations it has put in place uh, against that. This is another vulnerability that involves microarchitectural buffers. And so if you have symmetric multi-threading enabled, uh, also hyper-threading it's called, uh, then uh, you are a little more vulnerable to this because essentially the sibling hyper-threads can uh, spy on each other through these buffers. So uh, it then also displays yeah, both uh, whether that mitigation is in place and then if you're affected or not due to SSH. MT. Uh, so the mitigation for this is uh, clearing obviously these various buffers uh, that needs associated microcode. So it will either display you know, not, not, not affected, which obviously means your processor isn't affected by the vulnerability in the first place, vulnerable with no mitigation. Uh, so if you haven't got any mitigation employed, so either you've disabled that or uh, you, know, you haven't got anything to support that, uh, it will it'll show that. 
Uh, if you have, say, the mitigation enabled but no microcode to support it, that also gets enumerated, as well as, uh, you know, if you do have both mitigation enabled and microcode, then it will display CPU clear buffers as the mitigation there. So, yeah, a fair bit of detail under that. Uh, as I said, uh, mitigation does uh, come with a performance hit, uh, like all of these, basically on different uh, VM entry and exit and that kind of thing. Uh, these different buffers get cleared. Uh, that takes up some CPU cycles, so it does give you a performance hit. So you can disable it via a kernel command line option, which is MMIO underscore stale underscore data. So uh, that is by default at full, which means it does employ it. Uh, but you can also add into that uh, full comma no SMT to make sure that uh, symmetric multi-threading is also disabled disabled which then means uh, that you are more completely protected or finally you can disable it entirely uh, by specifying off as the parameter there uh, so yeah obviously to be completely mitigated against this so this is the case where perhaps you are doing uh, you know you're a cloud provider and you've got people running untrusted virtual machines and uh, yeah you want one of them probably enable complete mitigation against that but perhaps uh, you know you are just a normal user so you may want to just have the full mitigation or you know if you know that you're not uh, running any kind of untrusted code within virtual machines then you can completely disable it so yeah uh, I've got a link to the upstream documentation on that from uh, the upstream kernel tree if you want to know a bit more more about that. Uh, but moving on, we also then had updates for our 1404 extended security maintenance customers for uh, the kernel there. That's updating uh, the 3.13 general availability kernel. So this is clearly uh, one of the oldest kernels that we still support uh, in Ubuntu. Uh, yeah, getting very long in the tooth there, but thanks as always to the kernel team uh, for doing all the heavy lifting to make sure that uh, vulnerabilities there are still mitigated. This does include those MMIO stale data issues as well as a couple different high priority uh, kernel vulnerabilities that we've seen in recent weeks. That was a use after free uh, due to a race condition in the network packets scheduler, as well as the possibility to be able to bypass uh, UFI secure boot through uh, KGDB. Uh, an Intel microcode update uh, obviously went out. That was for the MMIO stale data issues. Uh, and that is for all of our uh, supported releases, 1804, 2004, for long-term support and the impish injury, 2110. Uh, so this, uh, we've listed nine different CVEs against this, and actually this um, up microcode update came out back in uh, May. So uh, it's taken a bit to get out, uh, and that's because we obviously want to make sure it is uh, fully tested across as wide variety of platforms as possible, because obviously if your uh, microcode fails in some way, so, and that happens uh, when the RAMFS is booted in early boot, then uh, your machine fails to boot, so not a good outcome. So that one has been under testing uh, for quite a while, but when Intel did originally announce it, uh, they mentioned uh, three CVEs that was fixing back in May and then it turns out uh, this microcode update is also obviously required to fix the MMIO stale data issues as well and that's why it doesn't just have three but has nine different CVEs listed against it now in uh, you know the USN that we published for that. So yeah, uh, make sure obviously that you are uh, running the latest microcode and that is something that you do have to reboot back into. So yeah, make sure that you've done that if you are affected. Uh, moving on though from kernel updates and the like, we also had an update for XMP. This is an XMP metadata parsing library uh, from Adobe actually. And it's used by a lot of different applications, things like the I Gnome image viewer, that's the default in Ubuntu, uh, Tracker, which is the uh, metadata extractor and searching uh, library and interface. Uh, Nemo, the file manager, I think that's used by the Cinnamon desktop. Uh, but yeah, so it's used by a lot of different stuff. Uh, 22 CVEs uh, were fixed in this update. Uh, and so yeah, the usual mix of issues that we see in applications and libraries written in memory unsafe languages. So, uh, you know, stack and heap based buffer overflows, out of bounds reads and writes, uh, integer overflows, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, then, you know, the impacts from these range from uh, denial of service if you can crash these applications all the way through to remote code execution. 
SBIP was updated as well. Uh, this is a website templating engine. And actually, thanks to Luis Infante Camara, who I mentioned in last week's episode, actually, uh, for preparing the update for this for Ubuntu uh, HNO for long-term support. So uh, seven different CVEs were fixed here, and being a website engine, it fixes the usual kind of things that we see in web frameworks. So things like uh, cross-site request forgery, uh, a bunch of different uh, cross-site scripting uh, issues that were there. There was uh, remote code execution that could be mounted against that as well, as well as uh, information disclosure too. So they've been fixed. Thanks again, Luis. Uh, we had an update for Apache as well. Uh, seven different CVs were fixed in this, and this is for uh, all of the supported releases. So 14.04 and 16.04 extended security maintenance, 18.04 and 20.04 and 22.04 long-term support, and 21.10. In this case, it fixes a bunch of issues ranging from request smuggling, uh, remote code execution as well, uh, denial of service attacks, uh, ability to expose sensitive info and the like as well. OpenSSL was updated for a single vulnerability. This is actually very similar to one that I mentioned back in episode 159. Uh, it's in the C rehash script. Uh, in that case, and in this case as well, actually, it's uh, possible code execution if you're running it against uh, certificates with crafted file names. C rehash is used essentially to generate hashes of the certificates, and that way then it means that uh, the lookup of a certificate is a lot faster. You don't have to enumerate them all by name and then go looking for which one has the hash that is contained within uh, you know, a message. You can look up the file name of the certificate using the hash itself. Uh, it's unlikely, I guess, as I said, actually back in episode 159, that anyone is using uh, this in practice on untrusted certificates. Given that uh, your certificate store is a trusted uh, set of information, you, you really shouldn't be you know, inject, having people inject arbitrary certificates to then run that on there, and they could possibly get code execution. But uh, yeah, uh, if you are, I guess you're a bit safer now. Uh, do note, though, that upstream actually say that the C rehash script is deprecated, and you should instead just be using OpenSSL rehash, or the rehash subcommand within OpenSSL itself uh, to do this now. And the last update that we had uh, in the last week was for QMU, uh, seven CVEs here uh, for 1804, 2004, 2204 long-term support and 2110. Uh, the usual kind of mix of issues that we do see in QMU, so that's uh, basically the ability for uh, guests to mount attacks against the host. Uh, and all of these usually happen uh, via the various different uh, emulation drivers that QMU includes. So uh, in this case, we've got uh, the floppy disk driver, uh, NVMe controller, uh, QXL display device driver, uh, VertIONet and the vhost vsoc drivers as well, all affected. And uh, the impact from these, as I said, is the ability to be able to crash QMU on the host, uh, potentially get code execution as QMU on the host, or even actually in this case to change file uh, ownership permissions as well. So uh, that is it for the week in security updates. All right, so the other thing I wanted to bring you all this week is part one in a new series that Camilla's put together around our cybersecurity buzzwords. And so this week, uh, you know, from ransomware to botnets and phishing, uh, Camilla dives into the details on some of the most prolific buzzwords flying around the cybersecurity community. Hello, listener. Welcome to another segment of mine in the Ubuntu Security Podcast. It's been a while, but I have returned to bring some real buzz into today's episode. How, you might ask? The buzz will come from the buzzwords we will be exploring. Cybersecurity buzzwords to be more specific. Let's start by defining what a buzzword is for those who might not know this term. A buzzword is a word or a term that, as the name suggests, is currently buzzing. It's a word that is popular within the scope of its usage. Everyone says it all the time and it seems like you can't escape it. The most popular articles about topics in a specific field use it every other sentence. 
People put them in big, bold, and shiny letters right there on the title of their scientific papers. And even your baby's first words end up being that buzzword because they end up hearing it more than the eternal and classic infant buzz phrase, say mama. A buzzword is, therefore, a fashionable word at a specific point in time. Every field has its own and cybersecurity is not exempt from them. Today, I want to actually explore some of the cybersecurity buzzwords we have and actually try to demystify them, as buzzwords can become something much more absurd or grandiose than they actually are just because everyone is choosing to use them. I think we all remember the era of the super low-rise jeans and can agree, or maybe agree to disagree, that just because something is being used by everyone out there, it does not mean it deserves all the hype. Of course, that is my own opinion on the subject matter, that is low-rise jeans. As for the buzzwords, the statement stands. So let's bring up some of these super-duper, amazingly popular buzzwords into play here. Let's actually define what they are for the ones out there that might not be cybersecurity wizards, and let's remove the buzzing that these buzzwords might have brought into our minds, shall we? Buzzword number one, ransomware. Ah, ransomware. You see this simple and yet deadly word everywhere. Defend yourself against ransomware. Ransomware might be just around the corner. No need to fear ransomware anymore. It was the dawn of 2017 when ransomware became a thing to people outside of the cybersecurity community because of the infamous WannaCry malware. That picture with a red pop-up window telling you that all of your files had been encrypted and could only be recovered after some type of cryptocurrency payment was made to the attackers was absolutely everywhere. And after that, the ransomware wave only got stronger, with new and improved types showing up all the time, an honorable mention being the Petya variants. Anyway, Since WannaCry was such a big deal at the time and people were so scared of it after it left behind its trail of mayhem and huge amounts of lost data, ransomware became the word chosen by various cybersecurity companies to describe that which is your main enemy in the digital world. The supervillain in this installment of the cybersecurity movie series that is actually our real lives. All defense tools now implement some type of measure against ransomware, because if they don't, you know that clients of said tool will ask, but what about defending against ransomware? Because that, my friends, is the buzzword that comes to their minds. Like the word computer virus in the early 2000s. Computer viruses still exist, but you don't see people freaking out about it anymore, at least not all that much, because now we have the antivirus. Phew, problem solved, right? So no need to have this as a buzzword anymore. However, just like computer viruses existed before the 2000s and still exist to this day, ransomware also existed before WannaCry and much worse versions of it will continue to exist while there still are vulnerabilities and hackers out there, which is to say, probably forever. The only difference is we now live in a time where people seem to care about it a little bit more, 
maybe because they are not implementing security measures to be safe against it, or at least they are not doing it very well. But I am getting ahead of myself here. Let's first talk about what a ransomware really is, which is actually something very simple to do. A ransomware is a malware, as a computer virus is also a malware. A malware is a malicious software, or in other words, a software that executes in a computing device and that does things that the owner of the device might not want it to do. Like, for example, encrypt all of your files and not allow you to access them. That is what a ransomware does in most cases. The main idea is a ransomware will be a malicious software that will prevent you from accessing your files until you pay some amount of money to the malicious entity that was able to get that ransomware to run in your network devices in the first place. So until you pay a ransom to the kidnapper of your data. Of course, this only works if you have someone on the other side waiting to exchange the money for the key that will decrypt your files, or else you could simply have a very destructive trojan or worm or whatever other malware that is combined with the file encrypting functionality in order for the malicious software itself to spread through the network before actually causing the data harm it does. The question now is, Whatever is the ransomware hybrid malware that targeted you and your network, the only way to recover the data you lost, the data as it was during the time of total encryption, is to pay the ransom. Should you? Cybersecurity experts usually recommend against paying ransom as it only shows hackers that they can continue launching ransomware attacks to get what they want. The correct way to avoid your files from being forever lost after your network has been infected by one of these nasty malwares is to recover data from the backup server you set up. You did set up a backup server to store the backup for all of your company data, right? I know, I know. Not always it will be the case that people will be able to set backups and then recovering all that is lost might be a much more difficult task if you decide not to pay the ransom. But come on, we live at a time where cybersecurity should no longer be put in the benches, and you should be highly concerned about possible attacks, especially attacks related to the ever-popular buzzword ransomware. Save some of your budget for backups. You won't regret it. Next on our list is buzzword number two, botnets. So botnet is an interesting buzzword because it opens the door to many other tech buzzwords that are in everyone's minds out there right now. Like crypto mining, for example. Why? Because you can use botnets to perform crypto mining. You can also use botnets to spread malware, including ransomware. Oh, and botnets? Their participants usually include lots of IoT devices. Bam, another buzzword right there. Now would you look at that? Seems like instead of a buzzword, we actually have a buzzword magnet in our hands, ladies and gentlemen. So yes, maybe botnet is not the hottest buzzword out there right now, but I decided to include it in the list because I feel like it is a disguised buzzword. What do I mean by disguised? It's the word that is in the subtitle for an article named Crypto Mining Hacker Gang Causes Damage to Company X or 
the word that is implied in a video that is named IoT device Y security vulnerability once again exposed by massive denial of service attack. Or even the word that is a part of a title or a conversation about cybersecurity, cyber attacks and vulnerabilities, but it might not be the one in big, bold, flashy fonts like it was the case for our dearest friend, Ransomware. But it all comes back to the botnets eventually. So what is a botnet? As the name suggests, it is a network of bots. Wow, could I get a round of applause for that definition, please, and thank you very much. Anyway, when we think about a robot, we think about a technological humanoid that speaks in a digitalized voice and obeys commands without question, unless they are actually trying to take over the planet and overthrow human supremacy. But that is a topic for another podcast to maybe discuss. The point here is, what is a computer if not a robot? No, it does not possess humanoid form most of the time, but it does communicate with us through a digital screen and it will execute commands that the software it is running tells it to. This software being created and programmed by a human being. So, yes, robots are computers, computers are robots, or at least fancy humanoid robots and even cute round cleaning robots need computers to exist and computers are the basis to create a robot. So, When we say botnet, we are actually referring to a network of computers. A network of computers, a group of computers, which are all performing some type of common activity, executing software with the same purpose. And, unfortunately for us, in this case, it is a malicious purpose. Botnets are created through the infection of computing devices. A hacker releases malware on the internet and this malware is able to propagate infecting various devices connected to our fairest of ladies, usually devices that are vulnerable to some type of specific vulnerability. So yes, once again we have malwares being a problem and ruining our days. Surprise, surprise. Once infected, the device becomes a robot, a mindless soldier in an army of many that will respond to a hacker, most likely the one that created the malware. It connects back to this hacker, usually sending some type of short and sweet, bittersweet for us that is, message to a command and control server, which we can see as an HQ, but it is actually nothing more than an attacker controlled device. And then, It waits. It continuously calls home to indicate that it is a part of the malicious group of infected devices that are at the hacker service, and it expects to eventually receive a message that will contain instructions which will give it an attack target and an attack to launch on that target. The malware that is running on the infected device, our bot, will contain the code or will receive and process the code that will allow this attack to be carried out. And then we have a huge amount of possibilities that we can consider for this attack. One of them being the bots could be instructed to send absurd amounts of data through the network to a specific target. The target device gets overwhelmed and the service it provides through the network can no longer be accessed by legitimate users because the device crashes. This 
is a denial of service attack, which is very hard to stop at the source as you have thousands of sources, most of which the device owners don't even have malicious intent. The devices got hacked and are secretly and mercilessly being used to the advantage of the attacker. Granted, the reason for the infection, the presence of the vulnerability that initially caused this, could be the owner's fault. Maybe they wouldn't have been unwillingly attacking the server of their favorite website had they applied that patch that recently came out for a critical vulnerability. However, you can't really call them the mastermind of it all when all they did was keep a vulnerable computer, can you? Anyway, I might leave that philosophical question for a later time. For now, another well-known use for botnets is crypto mining. Infect, divide, and profit. Why use your own computer and your own resources to mine cryptocurrency when you have hundreds of thousands of unpatched IoT devices at your disposal to mine for you? That's what the hackers think. Not me, just to be very clear. A botnet can also be used to spread ransomware. The bots worry about creating other bots as well as infecting devices in their own local networks that might make a hacker profit from a ransomware attack. And it all ties in beautifully to create the most amazing of buzzword sentences. Phishing campaign allows for creation of ransomware botnet amid crypto mining scandal. Oh, wait, there is a buzzword in there we have yet to talk about. Buzzword number three is phishing. Did you like how I introduced this one by just name dropping it previously? Since I gave it such a direct introduction, let's also give it a direct definition. Phishing is a type of social engineering attack where an attacker throws what we can only call as the equivalent to bait into the internet ocean in hopes of hooking some fish in their fishing rods. So the fish are like the victims of the attack, if that wasn't clear enough for you. Our situation, therefore, is kind of like real fishing, but in a different context, because here we are looking at people getting fooled into clicking on links that will cause them to access malicious websites and then share sensitive information like passwords and credit card numbers through that website all because they get fooled into doing it by a very clever attacker, which is using of their social engineering skills to achieve this. They could also simply get fooled into responding directly to a well-crafted message with sensitive information they wouldn't even share with their own diaries. Or maybe just with their diaries, but not other people. The question which remains is, what is social engineering? I have been throwing this term around in the definition of phishing. So to put it simply, a social engineer is someone that knows how to hack the human psyche. To put it not so simply, it is the art, can I call it that, <laughs> of manipulating other people into doing something they might not want to have done in the first place. 
So every spy movie, when you see the almighty main character get into a building they shouldn't by fooling the guard and making them believe they actually work there because they are wearing a fancy suit and spilling out complex terms to a phone, well, that is social engineering. The super spy plays the part and gives no time for the guard to think too much about whether they are actually a legitimate authorized person or not, because when the guard starts questioning it, they emphatically say something in the lines of, oh my god, I am going to be late to my meeting and you don't want Mr. Whatever to hear about this. Mr. Whatever is an actual big boss around the place and Mr. Guard worries he will get fired if he doesn't comply immediately, so just this time, he skips the ID checking phase of the process to let Super Spy waltz into the building unscathed. His fear of getting fired was used against him in order to make him do something he wouldn't do were he thinking clearly, not affected by emotion skip a part of the identification process of a person wanting to access the building. When we talk about spy movies, of course we have a much more interesting example than when we are talking about actual phishing campaigns, but the underlying idea is the same in both. The difference is, in phishing attacks, a hacker will usually send an email or a text message to a bunch of random people with a message that will toy with their emotions somehow. They focus on quantity instead of quality because eventually someone is bound to be freaked out by the email they get saying that their bank account will be closed if they don't immediately click the link in the message and change their password using the form provided. They click the link without paying attention to the website URL, which is not at all related to the one of their bank's actual website, and are redirected to a web page which looks exactly like the password changing page you would get had you accessed this legitimate bank website. They input their data, which is actually sent to the attacker because they are the actual entity controlling the device behind said website. And now, this attacker has the password to this person's bank account. Phishing rod? Fake emails sent to thousands of people saying the bank will close accounts that don't change their passwords. Bait? The human feeling of desperation one might get when thinking about having their bank account suddenly be inaccessible caused by the wording and official-looking appearance of the email message that was sent. Fish who bite on that bait, people who believe this message and don't pay too much attention to the signs that indicate that it is fake. Most times, people who are not that tech-savvy and don't even know how it is possible that a fake website could have the same appearance as the one from the actual bank. If it looks like the bank webpage, it can only be the bank webpage, right? So yes. I am unfortunately talking about all of the grandmas out there, which end up being a very common victim of these types of attacks. But do not get me wrong, I am not saying here that if you are not a grandma, that you are unaffected by phishing attacks. Social engineering techniques go way beyond fear or desperation, and anyone can be a target should a hacker strike the correct emotions on this target. 
Remember a certain Nigerian prince who was asking for a small sum of money only to return 10 times this amount to you as soon as their investment worked? Greed can also be your downfall. So the main tip for those that are worried about falling for phishing scams is simple. If something looks like it's too good to be true, it probably is. Also, if something seems too crazy to be true, maybe ask trustworthy people related to the craziness in question if that message you are receiving is indeed legitimate. So for our bank situation, call your bank manager. Have more than one information source and breathe before making any harsh decisions and clicking the link that will ask you for your credentials or for any kind of sensitive information for absolutely no reason. I mean, why do you need my credit card number if I am not actually buying anything? Think before you type. That is the best way to not be that sad, struggling fish at the mercy of some hook. Well, friends, sadly, we have reached that point of the episode, which will actually transform this into a series instead of leaving it as a single episode, since I am unable to write a small script. Oops, sorry about that. Anyway... We will continue on this journey next week, where I will talk about some other interesting buzzwords you might have heard when you were out and about. No spoilers, though, as it might ruin the fun of it. I await you all in the next episode of this series. For now, feel free to share your thoughts on this episode in any of our social media channels. For today, I bid you all farewell and until next time. Bye! Thanks again, Camilla, and we'll certainly bring you part two of that series in next week's episode. All right, uh, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at securityubuntu.com. We do hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on the Libera.chat IRC network, and we are on Twitter too, at Ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks, everyone, for listening again for another week. We'll be back again with you next week. But until then, remember, keep calm, because we've got your back, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.